Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I wanted to let you know about a bunch of events that we have coming up. Of course, we have the Theology in the Raw conference in the spring, March 31st through April 2nd, where we're going to be talking about race, sexuality, gender, hell, politics, all the stuff that we're thinking about these days. All the info is on my on my website, PrestonSprinkle.com. We also have a Faith, Sexuality, and Gender conference on February 8th through the 9th of 2022 in Sacramento. So if you're in the Sacramento area, um, you might want to consider attending that, or we will be live streaming this event. We'll, we'll live stream both the Sexuality and Gender Conference and also the Theology in the Raw Conference. The info for the Faith, Sexuality, and Gender Conference is on uh, on the website centerforfaith.com forward slash events. And if you go to that link, you will also see loads of webinars that we are releasing this winter and this spring on faith, sexuality, and gender. We're going to be talking about discipling teenagers in a sexualized world. We've got a Q&A web- webinar for parents with LGBTQ kids, how we should think about uh, reparative therapy. <laughs> therapy. We're actually going to dig into that, um, how to journey with gender and sexual minorities and so on and so forth. Again, all the info for the webinars and the sexuality and gender conference is at centerforfaith.com forward slash event. My guest today is the one and only Dr. Lynn Kohick. Lynn is a world-renowned New Testament scholar. She has taught for almost two decades at Wheaton College uh, outside of Chicago. She had a brief stint at Denver Seminary, and then now she is at Northern Seminary in Chicago. She's the author of many, many academic books. Uh, She has a PhD from University of Pennsylvania. She is super brilliant, super wise. We dig deep into the role of women in the Christmas story. And we also talk about various other incidences with women in the gospel. So please welcome back to the show for the second time, the one and only Dr. Lynn Cohen. All right, I'm here with uh, Lynn Kohick. I think this is the second time, Lynn, you've been on the podcast, so thanks for coming back on the show. Oh, you're welcome, Preston. It's delight- delightful to talk with you, and um, yeah, good to see you. So we, um, we, I talked with uh, Craig Keener, and we, we, there we focused kind of on Luke 2 and some of the political stuff going on, kind of an imperial background kind of reading. And then Mike Bird, um, he took the other Christmas story in the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation 12, <laughs> which is a little more Stephen Kingish, you know, with the dragon trying to devour this baby being born. And, um, and uh, yeah, so the scandal of Christmas, what's the angle you want to take with us? Yeah, I want to talk about the women in the text, um, both uh, Matthew and Luke. Uh, and I think what impresses me the most and can be kind of scandalous maybe to our ears today, is how much agency the women had. They were active. Uh, even, even in Matthew, uh, although Mary doesn't speak, I think there's, hmm. there's a lot of activity. Or, or Matthew, I, I wouldn't say he presents her as passive in the sense that we often think of passive. So yeah, that, that I would say that there's a lot more going on. Women are doing a lot of things. And that's, that's uh, to me, maybe one of the scandals. Uh, and I don't know if it was scandalous necessarily back in the ancient world, but um, we certainly have the impression that women didn't do much back then. Right, right. And I don't think that's the case, at least in these stories. Yeah, I always took the Matthew story to, to kind of, it, it seems like Mary doesn't have a lot of agency. So I'd love to hear maybe how I'm mis- misreading that. Yeah, well, um, I'm taking a lot of my cues from a recent book by Anne Clemens called Mothers at the Margins. Um, And she she talks about the genealogy, the women in the genealogy Mm -hmm. of Matthew. And then she she suggests, and I, I just think there's a lot here, she suggests that when when Matthew then begins to talk about Joseph and the birth of Jesus, he's continuing his genealogy. He's just doing it in a narrative form. And he's got to answer the question, why Jesus is Joseph's father and not really Joseph's father. Mm. (laughs) And so he, he has to trace this miraculous birth. And so the uh, Matthew, if I, if I'm Mary has to know she's pregnant. I mean, Mm. in it, you know, she, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Well, 
like, you, you got to know that. Just trust me in that. And you're a father. <laughs> so, you, you know, with your wife, like there are things that yeah. that she just will tell you, you know what, I'm I'm now pregnant. Like, I just know that. And so I I don't think Mary is surprised. But the story is, well, I'm sure Mary is surprised mm-hmm. in in the sense that it's an unusual <laughs> pregnancy uh, uh, once in 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 uh, eternity pregnancy. Um but the focus is on uh, answering the question, how can Joseph be Jesus's father and not actually be Jesus's father? And so that, if, as I read that story where it's a continuation of the genealogy, it kind of frees me up then to hear Matthew saying, uh, focus on the work of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Focus on the Spirit working. And when, when you do that, and you just... Twice it talks about how Mary is uh, found pregnant through the Holy Spirit. It's in the narrative, and then it's said to um, Joseph by the angel in his dream. Hmm. So, um, I, I, to have Mary do a lot of talking may shift the focus of what Matthew is trying to accomplish. But yet Matthew is clear that the Holy Spirit is working in Mary's life mm-hmm. in in an incredibly powerful way. Mm. So that that's where I would say it's not really a silence. It's it's not like he's muting her. He's trying to to elevate the work of the Holy Spirit and okay. explain yeah, uh, Jesus's unusual father yeah. <laughs> in a geneolo- genealogical sense. Lynn, I'm curious cuz this is I would. Can you paint a background for us just briefly? Like, how are women viewed? And I guess there's maybe two contexts we can talk about: the Greco-Roman world and then the the Jewish world. Because I think that's if you. I mean, I guess it's more of a question. Like, if we just come to the text without some kind of awareness of that world, we're going to re- read it through kind of modern Western lenses, and we might not see some of the kind of maybe provocative um, and and countercultural presentations of of women in the in, in the scriptures so greco-roman and the jewish world how are women viewed in those two contexts and i know i know it's a big question but maybe you can give us the, the footnotes to it or, or cliff notes <laughs> sure sure well i think the one thing um to realize is that women in the larger greco-roman world were were active both jewish and gentile women were active in the marketplace they might have owned their store, or it was a family store that they used. So in these small towns, um, women, um, you know, they, they, everybody who could work had to work to produce food, to mm-hmm. put it on the table. So women were, were act, they, they were active. They were out in the community. This idea that they were sequestered in their homes comes from classical Greek, uh, the very wealthy families, back in, let's say, Aristotle's time um, would be, and, and perhaps some of the very wealthy could afford to not have to go out in public uh, too much and, and kind of avoid the, you know, the private jet instead of flying commercial kind of thing. Um, but for the rest of us, um, the women are out there. So I think that it's important that, that uh, people understand women are, are they're just out there like women are today shopping and traveling and working and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, within the Jewish context, and it's important for our story, for the Christmas story, Jewish women knew scripture because they were either going to up to the temple where they would hear uh, scripture read or they were in their synagogues and they every week they would hear scripture and they would participate in the activities such as festivals and and other things where they they knew these stories and you can tell that when you read Mary's Magnificat that there's so many scriptural allusions in there so the Jewish women knew the uh, new scripture so that would be something else and the pagan women the Gentile women there no scripture to know <laughs> so uh, yeah so that I would say that's an important piece um, for us. And then I would say that at the time of Jesus, Jewish women could choose to follow 
particular teachers. Uh, we know that there were uh, Jewish women who identified themselves as Pharisees, maybe even that their husbands were Sadducees, but they followed the Pharisaic uh, tradition. So women made those kinds of choices also. Um, they, we know that women joined the Essenes, um, and, and not just that they joined because their husbands were there, but they themselves participated. In fact, in one case, you know, you have the, the purity codes um, in, in the Old Testament that, in, that regulate marital relations um, relative to a woman's menstrual cycle. And, and the woman was responsible when, in the Essene group to, uh, to make sure that they didn't uh, break those purity codes. She and her husband break those purity codes. And if he insisted, and so the laws were broken, it was incumbent upon her to let the leader of the community know uh, that this happened. And I think we, we, we imagine that, you know, women had no, no uh, self-expression. Mm -hmm. But in that example, these women are equal members in the community and are as responsible for the purity of the community as their husbands are. So I say all of that um, to kind of drive home a point with Mary. For me, the one of the things that kind of gets under my skin a little bit each year at this time when people talk about Mary and they talk about her as this poor unwed mother who's probably frightened and is going to be an outcast and all of that stuff. Yeah. And I, I want to remind people that she is betrothed. So as Matthew says, she could be, um, Joseph was thinking he would divorce her, even though they haven't had the wedding day. Yeah. The betrothal yeah. in her community was a very formal um, demonstration of intention. And so for her to... Um, to break those vows by becoming pregnant was like breaking wedding vows. And that's why the language of um, divorce is there. Mm -hmm. But as long as no one else knows that she's pregnant, Joseph can accept the child, which he ultimately does, right? He accepts the child as his own. And so if Mary believes that Joseph is going to believe her, or the angel tells him before she has a chance to tell him, then I mean, she may face the shame, but she also may not at all. I mean, Joseph is supposedly a very nice, righteous man. And so uh, it it is very possible that she said yes to the angel, even though she thought, oh, I'm opening myself up to all the shame. Okay. But I'd okay. like to suggest that at least as plausible a reconstruction of this is that Mary, godly woman that she is, was so excited about the fact that God is on the move and that the Messiah is coming hmm. that she figured God's going to also take care of this with Joseph. And, and hmm. he does. And there's, yeah, because she's, you know, um, betrothed. So yeah. the yeah. reason I push this scenario so much is that I feel like by emphasizing she could be you know, she's this poor un, unwed mother who is going to face all this shame. None of us will want to raise our daughters to be a Mary. Hmm. We're not focusing on the fact that the angel Gabriel came to her and said, here's, here's God's plan for you. And her, her question back is very different, actually, than Zacharias, if you look at his yeah. response to the angel Gabriel yeah. about the news of he and Elizabeth having a child. With Mary, it's more of a technical question, right? She said, uh, sort of like, you know, I, I took eighth grade health, and I kind of know how pregnancy <laughs> happens. And I'm, you know, <laughs> you know, so a little bit more here, you know, but she, but she's saying, she's already thinking God's going to do this. So, so tell me how it's going to happen. Hmm. And, and I want her faithfulness. I want her belief to be accented. And I feel like when we jump immediately to the hmm. poor unwed mother, shameful, all that, we, we lose an opportunity to see Mary as, as a role model hmm. for us of trusting that God cares for his own. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, that, I, I think that's an important. Yeah. 
piece of the story. Sorry, I have to ask this question. It's it's been in my mind. It's a little it's a little off the topic, but maybe you can give a quick response. That there's that verse because you said the women are out and about. They're in the marketplace. They're going to synagogue. They're listening. They're, they have a lot more chutzpah maybe than than, um, yeah. than some people realize. And and I the little I know about the other earlier Greek period Aristotle day, it wasn't the case. Didn't they kind of keep them locked up in the home and like it was not that at all. So this is more of a the Greco the Roman kind of period where where and, and even first century Judaism where women had more agency. What it, what's that? What is the meaning of that verse in Titus 2, where Paul instructs older women to teach younger women to be, is it busy at home, to be homebodies, to stay at home? Because that, I, I know that's off the topic of the Christmas story, but I, that's always, I've always wondered, are we reading that command through a modern lens? Is there something in the word that doesn't say mm-hmm. what we think it says there? Well, I, I, um, how I would answer that is by uh, saying that in the Greco-Roman world, so the Hellenistic time period, not classical Greek, okay. you know, with Aristotle, and Plato and all that, but in the Hellenistic period and the Roman period, there, there was a, uh, an importance placed on the matron of the home the woman who built up the home. And some of that language is used in the pastorals. I'm, I I don't have the Greek specifically in front of me right now of the passage that you talked about, but the, but overall this, there is this sense in which the woman is, I'll say in charge of the running of the household. Think maybe of like the uh, woman in Proverbs, 31, where she's got businesses, she's Hmm. making, you know, she's making the clothes or seeing that the clothes are made. She's, she just manages. It's like she's managing this fairly complex household where most things were, uh, well, lots of things were made uh, by the family that they used um, in their, um, they didn't purchase everything kind of like how we in an mm-hmm. industrialized society go out and purchase things. Many things were done in the home, but not everything. They would go out and buy baked bread instead of baking it themselves. But um, more things happened in the home. And if you think of, let's say, like Lydia in Acts 16, uh-huh. she she likely had at least maybe retainers or, or – um, relatives that lived with her. She had, she had a household and maybe she even was a slave owner or freed slaves that, that were, uh, with her home and she had a business purple dye. So that's kind of what I'm, I'm meaning. I'm thinking that is in, is in the backdrop there of these, um, pastoral epistles. Yeah. In, In these cities, you would have women that I mean, not all women had means, right? Not not all families had means, but some did. And in those cases, you were managing, you were managing things. So that mm-hmm. I think is probably what what the yeah. focus is. Not not in the sense of private and public. There's a lot of, and this okay. is taking us further from no, the Christmas story. But let me yeah. just say, it's <laughs> I think it's exciting, new and new thinking about this public-private split that was so common in in understanding the new testament period you know even 10 years ago 20 years ago but newer research i think on that language is showing that the way we think of public and private just doesn't map onto their world hmm. so that i think also al- allows us to to reimagine how women could be both modest and speak in public okay. you know and yeah. and we used to say well that's not that's not possible, but it, but it is just because of the way they divide up their, their space and how they think about public and private. The, the Greek word, I just looked it up, is uh, oikurgos, so the blend of oikos and ergon. It's, it's a hot box. It's only used here in Titus. Um, so a worker, something with work and home. So it's kind of a little bit, a little ambiguous exactly what Paul's saying there. It's almost, you, you do... You do have to kind of draw on the kind of cultural context, right, to even understand what it is. Right. It's just one word, you know. Um, but 
I, I know. I mean, I was raised in a very conservative like context. I remember when my wife, before we had kids, <laughs> when my wife went and got a job, some people were like, "Well, you're letting your wife work." I said, first of all, there's so many problems with the way that question's worded." But I'm like, "We live in an 800 square foot apartment with no kids. What do you What do you want her to do all day? Like, what is? Well, she's, she needs to be working. Paul says she needs to be a worker at home. So." This this verse, I've, I've always been kind of like, I just don't know if that's what's, I, I think we might no, have a not. modern understanding of what Paul's trying to say there, but that's helpful. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and, it, and it presupposes a socioeconomic status mm. um, that mm. it just cannot be carried. There's always been women working. I, I just watched um, Scrooge, you know, the Christmas yeah. Carol, oh, yeah. um, which I love that story. You know, well, you've always had char women. You know, you've always had women that come in and, and work. I mean, not if you also have wealthier women that didn't do that kind of work, but there, we have to be careful when we translate scripture and are imagining a house, um, (laughs) that we don't just impose our 21st century American socioeconomic cover onto, onto that. Let's go back to the Christmas story then. So, um, Mary, um, do we have the age? I mean, we always say she's a young teenager, um, and Joseph might have been a bit older. Do you have any thoughts on the age of the two? How, how much do we know or don't know? Yeah, I think she's probably a mid-teenager. I think that probably makes sense. I think the Romans knew that uh, pregnancy in a young, younger woman, even if she's able to get pregnant probably isn't going to be healthy for her, that it is better for a woman to be a little bit older. Uh, but I mean, still in her teens Okay, is what I, is what I would think. So I don't know, 15, 16, something like that. Okay. Uh, 17 okay. maybe with Joseph. So much depends on whether you think he and Mary had a family together after Jesus, um, or whether the, the brothers and sisters that are referred to as Jesus as part of Jesus's family are actually what we would call stepbrothers and sisters from uh, a marriage that Joseph had previously. Um, there, that other scenario to me that that Jesus had stepbrothers and sisters is certainly very plausible at this time. There were so many um, marriages that ended in the death of a spouse mm-hmm. for just so so many reasons that today we don't even don't even factor for us but certainly could be the case including dying in childbirth and shortly after that from complications with childbirth so yeah. so it may be that you know he had a couple of children with his, with another wife and then she passed away and so mary is his second wife and that that just was not ever considered a a problem, although they did have a virtue back in this time where you married once and then didn't remarry after the death of your, especially a wife with her husband to kind of honor his memory. And so that, that idea of just being married once, um, certainly continues in the early church. And that may be frankly, uh, when, when Paul says the, um, leader the deacon, the, um, elder uh, or overseer should be the husband of one wife. Oh, yeah. um, some argue that maybe what, what that means is that one, if, if your spouse, if your wife passes on, just stay single. That, that would certainly from a cultural standpoint, that could be a legitimate interpretation of, it, of that. I think also, it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't we say, so if he did have other kids before Mary, we don't see anything about him packing up his family, going to Bethlehem or going down to Egypt or anything. I mean, it's an argument from silence, right? I mean, it doesn't say one way or another, but um, you do. It seems like you get the impression that there's no other kids around, around the birth narratives. I don't know. But Yep. So whether those children just remained up in Nazareth with Mm -hmm. um, relatives while he and his new wife traveled to Bethlehem. Mm. Maybe that's a possibility. The fact that he exits the story fairly quickly, yeah. we don't we don't hear about him um, as Jesus enters, you know, into his teens. Um, that some argue, you know, he just 
passed away of old age. I'll put that kind of in scare quotes. Uh, people did live. If, if you live, I mean, you could live to even in your 70s, but it was um, rare. Right, <laughs> so. right. You have that hemorrhaging woman who lived, depends on the translation, she lived, what is it, 84 years as a widow? Or there's some rendering that she could almost be 105, I think, or something, which seems... Um, is oh, is that in... The one no, lived, it's Anna. Anna. The, the Anna... Anna in the uh, yeah Anna in the um, in the temple who was married for right. a little bit and then lived as a widow yeah yeah you're right I mean 84 103 either of those are possible but I mean 103 is really stretching it but you could live that you could live that long um, and the fact that she stayed mainly in one spot and yeah, didn't crazy. face the challenges childbirth um it's very possible that that she lived in eight decades yeah so uh going back to the christmas story so you have matthew one and two and then luke one and two are women portrayed the same similarly or differently in these two accounts would you um it seems like at least in luke one i mean obviously mary you know is very front and center and speaks a lot and you have the other men magnificat um luke's you know, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and go ahead. I've also been very interested in Elizabeth. Huh. I've wondered about um, just what her her level of faith, to my mind, is remarkable. Um, she. She, she becomes pregnant and and I don't know why, but she goes into seclusion for a little while. Um, but it's and I, and I, I don't know why she does that, but she she's so um, when I mean she's the first person who testifies to Jesus Christ. right? It, mm-hmm. Her baby, John, leaps in her womb, but she is also, somehow ready for, for, for receiving Mary. Um, you know, when Mary, after she, uh, encounters Gabriel, she then goes to visit Elizabeth. And I mean, we all know, kind of, we kind of know the story. Elizabeth greets Mary or hears her greeting and John leaps in her womb, but Elizabeth blesses her. Hmm. Um, Blessed is the child you'll bear. Um, you are the mother of my Lord. It, it just, she's another woman that I don't think we focus enough on who has for years and years and years and years prayed that she would have a child. And then the Lord provides that mm-hmm. child for her. Um, and and yet what, where her main focus is, is not to say to Mary, look at me, look at what God did for me, but to say, you're the mother of my Lord. I mean, it just, mm. I feel like both Mary and Elizabeth have grasped what God is doing in, in at least some way that, that I don't think people emphasize enough. Mm. Uh, and, and kind of, if we realize that these women were theologically astute Mm -hmm. (laughs) and we recognize that women in the new Testament could be theologically astute, Mm -hmm. I think it would uh, help us to better understand and better appreciate the testimony of female disciples. We can all be Elizabeth, right? Mm -hmm. We can all men and women can, can pray that they would be like Elizabeth who recognizes what the spirit of God is doing and being self-aware enough to, uh, to then verbalize that. So I've never noticed that. I mean, yeah, she's got so much to celebrate and she can be so excited about her own kid, but she's just so solely fixed on the birth of Jesus, um, in the midst of her own kind of like miracle, uh, baby. Um, wow. Yeah. I've always been so impressed with the level of, scripture that just saturates Mary's Magnificat 
um, so we talk. So for those who don't know, this is the the Magnificat is the name given to Mary's song. She sings, if you want to call it a song. Does she? What is it? I mean, poem, song, whatever. Her explanation or exclamation in response to greeting Elizabeth. So this is Luke chapter one forty six to fifty five. Um, I mean, it's saturated with scripture. Is this? I mean, I know, and I know it's 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 hard. Like how much is Luke involved in the reworking and how much is the original, like if we were there 2000 years ago, but um, do you have any thoughts on that in particular? Like the, the relationship between what Mary said 2000 years ago and Luke's reworking, is that a, I mean, that's kind of a complicated conversation or should, should we, should we like think like, no, Mary just had so much scripture on, in her heart like this. It just came out when she was excited with, about the news of her baby. Well, I, I think it is plausible that it's the latter. That's try, in a way the case that I'm trying to make, hmm. that um, the way that Elizabeth sets this up, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. There's this blessing, hmm. and then Mary says, my hmm. soul glorifies the Lord. These are two women who have been touched in an incredibly special way by the Holy Spirit. And... And I would argue that Elizabeth's pregnancy is almost as miraculous. It's not the same because it does happen through her husband, but her husband's also amazed. <laughs> and so the, this, this is an amazing miracle that has happened. And then obviously it's a unique miracle that has happened with Mary. Both these women, I mean, just if we just stop and think about for several months now, each of these women have been able to think about the fact that the Holy Spirit touched their lives in ways that are profoundly physical. I don't know if either of them have morning sickness, for example, scripture doesn't tell us, but I don't know if each time they, you know, throw up, they think, praise God, I have a life in me. You know what I'm saying? Their, their whole body is changing physically. They every day know that they're pregnant, and it's a re physical reminder of this spiritual reality that has touched them. So if Mary, which we're, we're, we're um, led to believe, is a religious, religiously attuned person, you know, would have picked up scripture being read each and every synagogue since the time, each and every Sabbath at synagogue, from the you know, time she could, rem you know, remember. I mean, it just, it's always been that. And going up to the uh, Jerusalem and the festivals and hearing scripture read and songs being sung. In a, in a culture where there's, this is a literate culture, but not everyone is literate. So there's a lot of orality to this, a lot of singing, putting scripture to um, a cadence. Hmm. I, I can totally believe that she could produce something like this wow. uh, because that that's how they're going to remember scripture. That's how they're going to um, meditate on it. So I don't think Luke has to do a whole lot. I think he, it's a believe to me, it's a believable presentation of, of a, of a disciple. So and a teenager, and let's yeah. say she is 15. And she gets, again, it's, it's not like she sat down and spent a couple hours crafting a poem and looking up verses. She doesn't own a, there's no Bibles back then, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's the scroll at the synagogue that she hears. She's probably not literate, right? I mean, she probably most likely wouldn't have been literate. So this is all audible, just absorbing right. of going to, and absorbing when, you know, she has to be faithful of even going to synagogue. At 15, she's absorbing this and it's all just strung together. I mean, she's quoting I have it in my references here. I mean, a lot from like First Samuel, right? There's a there's a correlation here between Hannah in First Samuel two yes. and Mary, right? Can yes. you, can you talk a little bit about that? That seems to be very intentional. That these two characters seem to be playing off of each other. At least Mary is. Is she is, is Mary like an extension of Hannah? Does or, or yeah? What's what's the, how, how should we understand these two stories? Well, I mean, it it could be she could be thinking about. Uh, Samuel and the story of Samuel that eventually leads to King David um, and Hannah's um, part of Hannah's story is that she bears this son for God and is dedicated to God so there may be some connecting points that way 
um, the, you know, it may, it may reveal to us that Hannah's song, like Miriam's song, were very much a part, I don't know, this speculation on my part, but did the early Jewish communities, at least in some places, uh, use these songs by Hannah and by Miriam uh, to, uh, to worship? And if so, then, you know, it's, it's, Mary would have heard, would have heard these. Hmm. And, and also what she's saying is, you know, God performing mighty deeds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you would hear that in Psalm after Psalm after Psalm. So, and raising up the poor, bringing down the wealthy. Again, those are basic themes that would have, would have been part of her heart, part of her world. So she wouldn't have needed to read scripture. Yeah. And it is maybe yeah. it is remarkable that at 15 she knew this and maybe she's just a wonderfully remarkable woman. Yeah. <laughs> who is spiritually uh spiritually sensitive. I know I sound like, you know, a broken record in saying that, but so so often I, I think people are surprised at women both in the Bible and later who who want to study theology or are a, are, you know what I mean, that are uh, intellectually stimulated by the, the conversations in theology and biblical studies. It just kind of, I think of that with the Samaritan woman and how she gets into a conversation with Jesus about where is, where's the true holy site, which is a live theological question at that time and a practical question at that time. And some interpreters say, well, she's just trying to divert Jesus's attention. And and the fact that he answers her question and even more answers it with this idea that God will be worshipped in spirit and in truth, which is an amazing concept. Mm. I mean, it, it, that's not to us so much now, but back in the ancient world where people were still doing lot, they were doing animal sacrifices in sacred spaces. That's, an, that's just a remarkably advanced theological concept. And he says it to her assuming, I think, that she would pick up at least some aspect of it. And and people, by saying, oh, well, you know, she's trying to divert Jesus's attention, suggests to me they just can't imagine that a woman would have real deep theological questions and would want to talk with a prophet about them. So, yeah, so I think Mary's song, and she's, she's a precocious one. She's the precocious one in the... Uh, <laughs> in the uh, grade school Sunday schools, you know, she's the she's the one that asks the questions. Well, you have then you also have like Mary and Martha, Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, right? Which is a posture of a student of a rabbi, right? Like she's a theology student is kind of the yep. the picture there. I'm since you you mentioned the woman at the well, what, I, I I I often hear people refer to her as kind of like a an immoral woman, you know, she's just going from man to man to man to man. And now she's shacking up with some guy that she's not married to. But that again, did that happen back then? I mean, I, it seems no. like, I don't know. Is there more, is she a victim of being taken advantage of by several men or is she sexually immoral? Like how should we understand her character in that story? Yeah, I don't think she's sexually immoral. Um, I think that first of all, women could not, um, could not divorce their husband. They, a woman had to have a guardian represent them in court. So while she might say, I'd like to get a divorce, she would need to have uh, a relative or somebody else, but a guardian that would go with her and sign the document for yeah. divorce. That's why in the Gospels, Jesus might say a man should not divorce his wife and a woman should not separate from her husband because she can't on her own uh, complete a divorce. That that legal um, process she can't do on her own. Huh. Um, so I don't think she divorced five times. I can't imagine <clears throat> and I don't think she was barren. And so these men, unless there were a lot of very confident men in the Samaritan town who thought, wait, let me, let me, uh, <laughs> let me give this a take a chance. At this. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that 
that the issue was uh, was that. Um, I I think as we see even like in the story of Ruth in ancient times, uh, tragedy could strike a family with a lot of deaths. Hmm. And so I could imagine this woman having maybe even three husbands die um, and to have one, there could be divorce in, in this. Maybe um, it's hard. We don't have a lot of information about how the Samaritans handled their marriage practices mm-hmm. compared to the Gentiles broadly and then the, and the Jews. Um, so maybe there was a divorce. Maybe she was divorced once or, but I can't imagine for immorality because it'd be very odd for another man then to divorce a woman who had been accused of adultery. I, I don't think you'd find that much at all. So assuming that she was always in this village, um, I think she, she experienced a lot of tragedy hmm. in her life. We hmm. have lots of, exa- not lots, but we have examples of people being married three times because, um, you know, two, two husbands die early on. I'm thinking it's um, one of Herod the Great's granddaughters. She was married, you know, mid-teens, and he died. She remarried. He died. And so by the time she's in her early to mid-20s, she's married a third time. So that, it's very possible for something like that to happen with a Samaritan woman. The reason that... Um, so anyway, I could imagine even five husbands dying is kind of an amazing thing, but it's, yeah, it's an amazing thing, but it could happen in our physical universe. It's the, you're living with a man now that's not your husband that is the point of contention. And I would, I would argue she could be a second wife. The person she's with now may also have also be married. So it would be uh, polygyny, which is not hmm. recognized by the Romans, but, um, we do seem to have uh, an example of a Jewish polygynous um, relationship in the second century, early second century. So uh, that could be, and of course, Herod the Great had many wives, but just mm-hmm. the average person, we have an example of that. And then, um, and it may be that she's a concubine, which is a technical kind of situation in the Greco-Roman world where the husband couldn't couldn't um, have a regular sort of marriage for a variety of social reasons. And so in that set up a concubine relationship where the woman could be, if she had sex with another man, be accused of um, adultery. But as a concubine, she didn't inherit the same way. Her children wouldn't inherit the same way. So it's possible that she, that the Samaritan woman is in this situation. So kind of protected mm-hmm. under a man's roof. But not if they had any children, those children wouldn't inherit, you know, because she's in the secondary category of concubine. Um, so I can kind of I mean, those are two readily available alternatives that are not God's best. Mm-hmm. Clearly, Jesus teaches about what's God's best in, in marriage, but are not are not immoral in the eyes of the community. And I I have to say that it's in the eyes of the community that for me, I just can't believe that she is an immoral woman. When, when Jesus tells her her history, which is a remarkable history, right? Mm -hmm. Five husbands, you just don't guess that, right? It's clear he's a prophet. And that's what she says. You're a prophet. So then they talk and he gives her this rich theology. When she goes back to her town, they all believe and they and they don't see a changed woman. It's not like the Gerizim demoniac who's now in his right mind and they all see, wow, something really changed. They believe her. They believe her because of her testimony. And her testimony is he told me everything I, I ever did. And for women in the ancient world, you can see it on tombstones, who they were married to and what children they had very much identifies them compared to for men, sometimes their occupation will also be listed. So Jesus identified her, knew her in that way that is a typical way of women being identified then. But it's remark. she has such a remarkable history. Jesus couldn't just guess that. Mm-hmm. And that's why she says he's a prophet. Mm-hmm. So they believe because of her testimony. And that says to me, they knew her as a moral person, a religious seeker, someone who was very focused on 
um, understanding the Bible, because the Samaritans used the first five books of Moses. They just under, understood them differently than the Jews. But but they at least knew the basic story, right? They would say, oh, we're, we're connected with the ancient Israelites. We're right, you know? And, and so she was interested in that. And they, the townspeople believed her. And then they go out and they want to talk with Jesus more. And they say, you know, now, now that we've heard him, we really believe, but, you know, even more. And they call Jesus the savior of the world. Wow. And that's a title that wow. rarely see, but it's, it's given to him in part based on her testimony. And I think that testi- their testimony, savior of the world, I think encapsulates what he was saying to her that in the future, those who worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth. And, and so she was able to communicate that cosmic aspect of Jesus's message to her. And they believe. And I just don't think, I, I just can't imagine any town then or now that would have that kind of belief response to someone that they believed was immoral. Yeah, that, that's uh, especially in that day and age. If she was a sexually promiscuous person, they wouldn't they wouldn't have trusted her testimony. Um, so that that makes total sense with the five husbands that she just given the cultural dynamics, she most likely was not going around divorcing. Like that's just not possible. Um, so she is a victim. Then the guy she's living with, even if she is a concubine or a second wife, in that culture, right? I mean, she kind of needs to get married to be able to survive. I'm sure people probably thought she was cursed. I mean, if all these husbands keep dying, you know, I'm, I'm thinking like Genesis 38, you know, remixed. Um, uh, so there's, there's so much victimhood that saturates her story. Do, do, it, the one, no, yeah. The Let one option just you didn't mention is like, could, sorry, could she just be shacking up with a guy that the, the guy she's now living with just like neither of them are married. They're just, or was that not really a that, thing? That is there? certainly, no, I mean, it, it, it certainly is possible that she is uh, doing that. Um, the one other uh, point when you mentioned back in um, Genesis 38, it marriage. So it may be that the man that she's with now is in some way a relative of her pre- previous husband, huh. but he is not honoring her. Um, kind of like, you know, before Boaz, there was someone that was that kinsman redeemer and said, well, nope, I, I'm happy to take uh-huh. Ruth's family land, but I really don't want her, yeah. you know, and then Boaz accepts her and his family responsibilities in that. So it, but I have no idea if the Samaritans followed that practice at all, but that could also be that she's caught in that kind of web of, um, customs that, um, you know, that is, isn't honoring, uh, the relationship in the full, in the full sense as Jesus, as Jesus means it. If they are, the the other thing that people need to realize today is that the state did not give a marriage certificate in the ancient world. You just said you're married and you had a wedding and the documentation around that, if any, was a dowry agreement. That was the thing you could take to court. And so, and, you know, to write up a dowry meant you had money. (laughs) So the woman brought money into the marriage and the husband could use the dowry amount, but the wife may have other money that's hers. So not all of her money gets turned over to the husband. The husband only has the dowry money. And if he divorces her without cause, that is, like if she committed adultery, all bets are off. But if he just decides, I don't want you anymore, I want somebody else, he has to give her back all of the dowry. So that's that's all written up in these dowry documents. So it may be that a couple stays together, doesn't have money for a wedding, but then when their child is born, they create a document. And in that document, it indicates that they had been together for a while but I don't know that we would call it cohabitation in the way that we think of it today. Okay. It may be just that they are documenting what the, the society already knew and honored and affirmed, but now they're documenting it because they've had a child and, and so there might be some money and inheritance involved. Yeah. So to me, I, I go back to Jesus teaches what marriage is, that 
you know, the two become one flesh, a man uh, and a woman become one flesh, and that's ideal. And he teaches his disciples um, that that should be um, uh, a lifelong partnership. And they're a bit surprised (laughs) and reluctant uh, to commit themselves uh, to a woman who will eventually grow old. Um, but the, um, uh, but that's Jesus's ideal. And, and so I, I'm always thinking of that when he says the one you're with now is not your husband, remembering how he defines husband, which is God's best and isn't always, um, expressed in culture in, in those same high standards. (laughs) Wow. Gosh. I, you must cringe when you go to church sometimes. <laughs> I don't know what church you go to. When they, but... when they start this stuff, I really do. And when they start the genealogy of Matthew, I'm like, ah, because again, the whole, whole sexual innuendo stuff comes up. Uh, and, you know, it just the the theme of, you know, look how great God is. He even saves women who are sexually immoral. And while that is true, the problem that I have with that is that women never escape even if they're women on the page, they never escape the shame of the uh, sexual uh, sin. And so we lose them as possible role models. And huh. I, I also think that those women uh, are not being judged for sexual sins. Tamar is trying to have a child to honor her husband, or and it's Judah that is wrong. Right. It's And Judah right. says you are more righteous than me. In fact, this is a turning point in Judah's life. He he had been fleeing his family. And he's the guy who sold his brother. Mm-hmm. This is a turning point for him. And he starts to go back onto the, onto the right path. And we see how he treats um, Joseph and, and Benjamin. So the uh, with Rahab, yes, as a Gentile, she owned an inn. Lots of un ungodly things happen there. Um, but Rahab is the one that prophesies that God will, um, will conquer the land, not the spies. And I find it interesting. People focus a lot on her immorality and then they just skim right over the, the issue that the spies went to her house. Oh, of course not to engage in any kind of immorality. And I think, well, how, how are you so sure about that? <laughs> you know, we give them. And yeah. Well, also in that, in yeah, that culture, in a Canaanite culture, we have to ask the deeper, you know, this whole idea that like women become prostitutes because they're sexually promiscuous or something like this is, this is a down and out. Like what's the backstory to Rahab that would send her down that path? I mean, again, not to excuse just blit, just sexual, you shouldn't be a prostitute, okay? She's having sex with guys that aren't she's not married to, but she has to have a lot of victimhood built into that story to get her to that place, right? I mean, that's that's a valid yeah. assumption. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. So many of the slaves in the first century um, are. I mean, so many of the slaves were um, put out as prostitutes. Um, so, and any slave at this in the first century was, uh, available to their owner and whoever their owner chose to make them available to. So, and you know, in every church congregation, you're going to have slaves, right? So, I mean, the, the, we, anyway, that would take us far afield to kind of ponder that sort of stuff. But the, um, with, with Rahab, she is the one that testifies to what God will do. And it's not until the end of the story that the slave, that the, uh, spies, when they return, uh, to, uh, Joshua proclaim basically what Rahab had said Mm -hmm. over, uh, over them. And then, you know, with Ruth, that's a beautiful story. And, and Ruth, uh, uses agency, both Ruth and Naomi. And, present the question to Boaz, will you uh, serve as our kinsman redeemer? And, and he praises Ruth. So this idea that, you know, she's trying to be um, seductive on a threshing floor, that's not what he sees. That's not, it's not what the text says. He doesn't read her 
actions that way. He sees it as she's giving me information and she's doing it in a way and in a space where if I say no, neither of us are shamed, (laughs) you know, as opposed to out in the middle of the, of the marketplace the next day, you know, Boaz, will you marry me? Ah, it's a bit awkward. So, um, and then, um, with Bathsheba, you know, she's, she's doing, uh, a menstrual purity, uh, right of, of, um, cleansing. She's not in a jacuzzi. Um, water was scarce, as you know, uh, at, at that time. So we don't want to imagine her just splashing around <laughs> somewhere. We don't know whether she has clothes on or not as she's performing this right. What we do know at the beginning of that story is that David's not supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. And we know at the end of the story, when Nathan condemns him, he condemns just David for taking another man's you lamb. Hmm. The man had everything, the rich man had everything, but he took what didn't belong to him. And that's the sin. So if we follow the biblical text, there, Bathsheba is sinned against, but she is not uh, the one that is trying to entice another man or is actively looking to commit adultery. She is taken by the king. And, um, and, and he, um, yeah, he, do you he think commits, there's uh, so you think crime. she doesn't have as much agency in that story? I mean, here you have the king who is demanding her. Basically, it's not like he's cons- he's not trying to woo her in in a consensual kind of relationship, right? He's like, I I'm the king. I'm going to sleep with you. Is that how we should understand it? More of like a power rape from somebody of a higher status? Because she doesn't have I a lot. So. She's a, I don't even think she speaks in the story, does she? She's just very much like an object of, like even the story, it makes her out to be something, somebody that was taken by somebody of power. Yes, that's yeah. right. And the only things yeah. that she indicates to David is I'm pregnant. Um, mm. And and so the, the menstrual pure, the note about menstrual purity rights makes it clear to the reader that this baby will be uh, David's. Um, but I think it also helps us understand what this bathing is. Um, and the, it, you know, we don't know what, what kind of bath this looked like. We do know that water was limited. We don't know, is she trying to be under some kind of covering, but the angle is such that he can see, I mean, it's just, I know people can get tripped up by, he saw her bathing, but we just, um, the story itself doesn't lay blame there. It lays blame mm-hmm. on David. And so I, I, that's, that's what we have to take later when she's his wife and when she is trying to secure the throne for Solomon. We see her as making very uh, deliberate choices to put her son forward. But I I don't think we want to read back into the event of when she first was brought to David, that somehow she manipulated that scene as well. She's not manipulating later. She's just trying to put her son on the throne, which is a pretty normal thing that people did. A lot of the stuff that I'm sharing with you now, I want to just let the, uh, your listeners know a lot of this is in Anne Clement's book, okay. Mothers on the Margins. It's just such an excellent book. She just really digs into each of these women and says, let's look at them in relation to key themes that we find throughout Matthew's gospel. And I love that because that brings Mary in. You know, some people say these four women in the genealogy are are Gentiles. That's what we want to hold together. And that, of course, makes Mary separate. But Bathsheba could be Jewish and just married to a Hittite. Right. It's not. It's not clear uh, with that. The the first three are definitely uh, Canaanites. They're mm-hmm. pagans. But that may not be. Well, it may be part of the theme that Matthew is drawing out because at the end he does ask that the disciples take the word to the ends of the earth. So that is a theme. But there's also a theme of righteousness throughout Matthew, and that's what Judah calls Tamar. You're more righteous than me. So. The, the characteristics like loyalty and faithfulness that you see with Ruth, you know, that's Jesus's call for discipleship. So there's, there's a lot that can be seen in these women as, 
as modeling important discipleship characteristics. And we miss all that if we're just going to focus on, oh, they had a sexual sin, mm-hmm. which in a lot of cases I don't think is an actual accurate reading. <laughs> yeah. But even, you know, but even beyond that, let's not miss their discipleship mm-hmm. uh, modeling. Lynn, we're going to have to wrap things up. Can you give us this a go, go back to the Christmas story, just a real quick, like, okay, in light of all this, kind of, especially digging into a lot of the cultural backdrop, the historical backdrop, how, how should we kind of read the Christmas story, especially as it pertains to, you know, the agency of women that surround it? Yeah, wow. Um, I would like for people to read the Christmas story and the female characters as though these women are teaching us how to be faithful followers of God. Mm, that's good. That's good. They're not, they're not just on the margins of the story. They're, I mean, the primary kind of like theologians of this, especially in Luke, Luke one, especially, um, well, thanks so much, Lynn, for your time. And I could just talk. You're like a walking commentary. I, I just want to, <laughs> I, I want to call you up when I'm doing my Bible reading in the morning and just like pepper you with questions. But um, thanks so much for yeah giving your time and for giving us such amazing insights. And I know I think a lot of the Christian leaders and pastors listening, hopefully the next time we preach on, you know, Matthew 1 or John 4, or Luke 2, uh, we'll, we'll pay you know closer attention to the, the historical context. So thank you for that. Appreciate well, thank you, Preston. It's yep. always great to talk with you. And uh, any time that you want to okay. just do New Testament stuff. Oh, man. All right. I'll, 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 keep, I'll take you up on that. <laughs> Thanks, Lynn. Appreciate it. Great. All right. Thank you.